it's weird how many of my favorite things nowadays are things that I was into when I was a little kid. Like I was hugely into Doctor Who as a kid and I still love Doctor Who and Star Trek and like comics and like bouncy funk music. I feel like a lot of my core interests were formed at a pretty young age. Annalie, do you have any childhood interests that still captivate you today? I mean, same. Like, it's kind of, I I often think about how weird it is that I turned my childhood obsessions into a job because (laughs) I loved science fiction when I was a kid. Um, My life was completely transformed by watching Star Trek The Motion Picture, which, I mean, Mm. I watched that when I was like seven. So I know that people, you know, don't like that movie as much, but I... I'd never seen anything like it when I was a kid, and I just was blown away. And I was like, wow, Feature! Feature is the Same. spaceship! Oh, my God! It was, like, a total revelation. And I, you know, I love Godzilla movies. I still love those. Mm-hmm. I still love to um, write. <laughs> like, I was a writer when I was a little kid, and I still am. So, yeah, I, I'd say, yeah, I, I'm pretty much still, you know, roughly 10 years old in terms of my interests. Well, I should say more like 13 because I, I yeah. also I like D&D and like kind of mm-hmm. scary horror movies and stuff like that. Gro- more like gross horror movies. Um, so I'm still yeah, I'm still into all that stuff. So uh, yeah, never grow up, kids. <laughs> I mean, I feel like it's probably more common than we realize. I mean, I was hugely into Smurfs for a year or so when I was a kid, when I was like 10 or like 11 or 12. And those are gone. Like, I'm, yeah. I'm not into Smurfs anymore. Um, Sesame Street was like major for me at one point, And I don't watch Sesame Street anymore. So it's not like 100%. But, yeah, I was you know, like really guess, into Piers Anthony novels. And I can just oof, throw those in the trash now. Oof. So that's fine. Yeah, I mean, there's certain specific like authors or specific things that I'm like now like, why did I ever like that? But the the genres I generally still like. Same. Um, you know, I think it's just some things some things kind of drop away as you get older, but a lot of stuff sticks around. Yeah, a lot of things stand the test of time. And I think that's not just true for things that you love as a kid, but like also things that your parents loved as a kid. You mm-hmm. know, like there's there's yeah. stories that that I watched as a kid. I should say movies that I watched as a kid, like Jason and the Argonauts and like a lot of the Ray Harryhausen movies that my dad showed to me because he loved them when he was a kid. And so I think there's a a whole kind of subset of stories that um, stand the test of time over generations. Yeah. And, you know, obviously there's the suck fairy. Like there's the thing (laughs) where sometimes you go back and you're like, this was the greatest. I love this so much. It's the greatest thing. And you're like, wow, I didn't remember how (laughs) just terrible and cheesy and like borderline like offensive this is. Oh my God, how did I not notice all of this terrible stuff in this thing that I loved as a kid and like, or that I loved like 20 years ago even, or Mm -hmm. even sometimes 10 years ago. It's just like, (laughs) oh wow, okay. I totally was just oblivious to a whole bunch of problems with this thing. Yeah, You know, and so I think that actually the suck fairy is kind of what we're going to talk about today a little bit. I mean, we're, we're talking about Specifically, Doctor Who, I think, is the kind of where we're, our starting point for this episode. Because, as you all know, I always want to talk about Doctor Who in every episode, and right now is a good moment to talk about Doctor Who because it's the 60th anniversary, and Doctor Who is still going strong. And we just watched, you know, some new Doctor Who that has been blowing our minds. Yeah. Um, but you know, just in general, how do things manage to stay cool and relevant? How do they mm-hmm. avoid the suck fairy? How do they dodge the suck fairy? And how do you keep updating a classic piece of entertainment without kind of losing sight of what made it cool originally. And so you're listening to Our Opinions Are Correct. I'm Charlie Jane Anders. I uh, write science fiction. My latest book is Promises Stronger Than Darkness. And I'm Annalie Newitz. I'm a science journalist who writes science fiction. And my latest novel is The Terraformers. Yeah. And in our mini episode next week, we're going to be talking about like what kind of vehicle we would turn into if we could turn into any mode of transportation at will. <laughs> Just, you know, any any type of vehicle. Wow, I, I actually hadn't looked at that yet in the script. I'm really excited now. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be a good conversation. I have a feeling Adelie will have thoughts. I do. And that reminds me, you know, our podcast depends on you. You are the, the linchpin. 
You are the the crucial piece of infrastructure that keeps this podcast going. We're entirely listener supported. Um, our Patreon is how we get to keep doing this, and it's our community. It's like our like beloved family of listeners and friends. And we have a Discord where we hang out and talk to y'all all the time. We post mini episodes every other week when we're not doing a main episode, and you know it's just sort of a part of a way to have a better relationship with the podcast and help keep us making more episodes. And it can all be yours for just a. Few bucks a month anything you give us just makes our opinions even more correct and find us at www.patreon.com slash our opinions are correct yay okay let's get into it Okay, so just a heads up. We are recording this episode right after watching the first new Doctor Who episode of 2023, The Star Beast. So, A... There's going to be some spoilers for that episode, and so if you haven't seen it yet, you should probably just skip ahead about five minutes. And also, we haven't seen the other new episodes yet, so we won't be discussing those. Adelie, what did you think of The Star Beast? Oh my god, I loved it. I think that David Tennant is kind of like the Doctor Who that I most Mm -hmm. fell in love with. I, I started watching Doctor Who regularly around the time that he was the main Doctor. I mean... So mm. I I just always, he's my doctor. You know how everyone has like their special doctor? Well, he's my special doctor. So it was lovely to see him again. It was amazing to see the um, the incredibly awesome gender politics in the show, mm-hmm. which I'm sure we'll talk about more. And it was also just really cute. It was, it was like cozy and fun and happy it was it was everything i needed it was like it was it was cozy return to doctor who with a lot of fanfare and running around and being silly yeah it was it was definitely everything i needed too it was like a balm to my freaking soul it was so great to see Catherine tate back as donna noble sometimes i think there's something missing like i had something lovely and it's gone i lie in bed thinking And, you know, they finally fixed, you know, the way that she was left back in like 2008, where she had to have her memory of the doctor wiped. And if she ever remembered the doctor, she would die. And, you know, that felt like something that they needed to address. And they now they have. And they addressed it in a way that just kind of tied it into this very kind of like optimistic, happy kind of vibe of the episode. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, they got to have all the feels of like, oh my gosh, the doctor has to risk sacrificing this person he loves or they love in order to save, you know, London from like being destroyed by this nasty, like fuzzy creature. <laughs> um, but at the same time, it kind of also just tied into like the overall queerness of the episode because they made it kind of the, the, with the solution to Donna's like, exploding head problem was more queerness your head won't explode if there's queerness and your head just won't sort of explode like, if gender isn't binary which is like, exactly you know piss off JK which is Rowling. true in real life <laughs> that's true in real life like it is it was scientifically accurate many people i know have had their heads not explode because of gender not being binary like saved many a person from scanners there's many heads that i really love and care about that are still intact because of, you know, giant gender being complex and multi-layered. And Yasmin Finney, who I already love from Heartstopper, is yes. so great as Donna's daughter, Rose. And she's going to be the new companion, right? Well, it's unclear. Okay. I think she's she's going to turn up again. And there are hints that we will see her interact with then the next doctor, Shusi Gatwa, she's not going to be an official companion, but I think oh, she's going to keep coming I back. She was. Okay. Dang. I, I was like, totally like they're passing the torch to the next generation of companion. 
There's well, a new companion who's coming along in December called Ruby Sunday, and that's like a different character. But yeah, I mean, it was just it's a whole new level of que- queerness, and like this is like I feel like the first I love time that. a whole new Doctor Who colon a whole new level of queerness. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, you look back to like when Russell T Davies brought Doctor Who back in mm-hmm. like 2005, and one of the first things he did was sort of like gently ease us into like the idea of like everything being kind of queer like Mm -hmm. with the first episode with captain jack harkness the doctor is just like yeah in the 56th century everybody's basically pansexual or the way he puts it is like they're not as picky about who they dance with in the 56th century yeah and it kind of became canon that that like the doctor is kind of bisexual i mean he's kind of asexual but or they are they're kind they're of. kind of i mean they're yes both and neither and like but this is the first time i feel like that they just say on screen mm-hmm. the doctor is neither male nor female the yes. doctor is both and the doctor transcends gender which is really how it should always have been yeah but now it's official and the doctor is officially just like a queer icon now and that feels new and different yeah that feels like a sea change in in how we kind of think of Doctor Who. I also think that it makes Doctor Who feel radical again in a way that mm-hmm. it probably hasn't been in a really long time because... I mean, it's had its moments. We got a black female doctor a few years ago. Yeah. You know, it's it's had its moments. I guess what I meant was that specifically right now in the UK, there's a lot of anti-trans legislation mm-hmm. and sort of cultural wars over trans people. And so having, it's really horrific. having this cultural mainstay, which is like so heavily associated with Britain as a nation, mm-hmm. have the hero be like, trans people are awesome. The doctor is kind of trans in a way. That's big. That's really big. And again, bombs my freaking soul. Like I really needed that. Like, the same way that I needed like She-Ra and Steven Universe. This feels like it's yeah. just, it's so medicinal. So, okay. This is where I want to call on your extreme Doctor Who expertise because you are a super fan. I feel like you've watched every Doctor Who episode that's possible to watch. So why do you think that this show has managed to last for 60 years? Yeah, I mean, there's a whole bunch of reasons, but really I think what it boils down to is that Doctor Who is like this unique combination of, on the one hand, the Doctor is a timeless archetype, sort of like the Pied Piper or Robin Hood. Like Hmm. the Doctor is this figure who is just sort of kind of timeless and transcends like whatever moment of history the Doctor finds themselves in. But at the same time, the show is just endlessly flexible and has this very open-ended format. Like, Doctor Who has just always reinvented itself and not just like the whole cast and crew change. Like there's different companions, there's different actors playing the doctor, there's different people working behind the scenes, but also just like the format of the show has changed with the times, the touchstones. There's almost nothing about Doctor Who that's like completely set in stone. Like, okay, you've got the doctor. The doctor Mm -hmm. has to be part of Doctor Who. Sure. There's the TARDIS, but actually they've, they've gotten rid of the TARDIS for like periods of time. Like in the Mm -hmm. early seventies, the doctor didn't have the TARDIS Mm -hmm. for a while there. The doctor was just stranded on earth. Tom Baker's first season, the TARDIS doesn't really show up. You know, you could actually have doctor who, where there's no TARDIS. There were some of the books, the doctor loses the TARDIS for like 10 books in a row. and has to get the TARDIS back. And it's just like, yeah, you don't actually, almost nothing about the show is necessary for it to be doctor who, except for this person who can, who can drastically change. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for my newsletter, I interviewed Javier, our friend of the podcast, friend of us, Javier Brio-Marswach. And he was saying that, like, Star Trek is very versatile because you just need a starship and a crew, and the crew can be whoever. But there's always a starship. There's always Starfleet. There's always, like, uniforms and the Prime Directive and stuff. Doctor Who is even more open-ended. The other thing I think that's important for, like, something like Doctor Who or Star Trek to, like, survive as long as it has is like having a core kind of message or ethos Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. like star trek always is about humanism and using your mind and like trying to understand things instead of just shooting at whatever you don't understand and doctor who similarly has this core message of hope and courage and what i would call whimsical kindness and that never Mm -hmm. changes no matter how much other stuff changes yeah, well, while you were talking about Star Trek versus Doctor Who, I was thinking about how 
the continuity in Doctor Who is the Doctor, whereas in Star Trek, it's the world. And that's why Star Trek Discovery was such an interesting revelation, because we got to see that world, like, in Fast Forward. Like, what? Oh, like, let's jump ahead. I think it's 800 years or something that they jump ahead. Something like that, yeah. Yeah, and it's like, oh, the world has completely unraveled, and now we're trying to rebuild that familiar world, which um, was kind of... Um, a unique take on the series. And I think that's also in some ways why that series has been so, like fans have been so picky about it. Like, oh, it doesn't give us the thing that we want. And it's like, because it's much more like character driven. But yeah, I would say that the message in Doctor Who that endures is, like you said, that you can use your mind to solve problems. And also the thing I was thinking about the doctor, and I'm not sure how you feel about this, but he and he, she, they are kind of a, they're kind of sneaky. They're a bit mm-hmm. of a rogue. Um, yeah. or they're, I mean, I think it's it's not um, controversial to say that the doctor is a trickster. Mm-hmm. And, oh, yeah, um, no. It's interesting because so much science fiction, especially in the 60s when the show started, was based around these kind of military or semi-military organizations like the Federation, uh, or like Starfleet, mm. I should say. Um, yeah, they and had UNIT. Yeah. yeah, they had UNIT, but UNIT was a thing that the Doctor always had a very tangential relationship to. Mm. I know there was that phase in the 70s where the Doctor was kind of like a real like member of UNIT or whatever. It's, um, yeah, it's it's very weird. Like, it's, it's but he's always kind of a pirate, you know? He's more of a privateer mm-hmm. relationship with UNIT than yeah. like actually being a, a kind of, you know, he, he never obeys authority. Um, and yeah, I, I and love that, that he's he's kind of an anti-authoritarian. It's that is a very core part of the character as well, I think, is like anti-authoritarian, kind of non-conformist. Mm-hmm. Like when they brought Doctor Who to America in the late 70s, there were articles about it in like TV Guide where they were like, this is a show about non-conformism. And that's like how it was packaged <laughs> for American viewers, which was an interesting way to think about it. And like the doctor, yeah, the doctor defeats enemies. The doctor generally won't destroy the, the 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 bad guys. Instead, the doctor will trick them into destroying themselves or mm-hmm. will give them a chance to like do better, but then, you know, we'll be like, well, you, you've, I've sabotaged your thing. So if you turn on on your super weapon, it'll destroy you rather than anybody else. Mm -hmm. But like, so yeah, that, that core message, I feel like anything that my theory that I've been thinking about a lot lately is that anything that lasts decades has to have like a core ethos or a core message that people kind of believe in and that they're invested in as much as they're invested in any character or any idea. And like with Doctor Who, it is that kind of sense of like creativity and optimism and nonconformity. It doesn't have to be like a coherent ideology. It could just be a vibe. But like, for example, like Transformers, like you look at Transformers and you're like, oh, it's just, it's a cartoon about toys or it's a, Mm -hmm. it's just a toy based cartoon that then got turned into live action films. But like Transformers, like I think what people keep finding compelling about it is this thing of like our cars and other forms of technology that we associate with have personalities and we yeah. can have relationships with them and they can be Autobots or they can be Decepticons. Like the technology, like the technology that we deal with all the time can be friendly or it can be unfriendly. And mm-hmm. that's the thing that I feel like that's the kind of thing that people respond to emotionally about Transformers. Yeah. there It's all about dual use technology and, mm-hmm. and also the fantasy that that the relationship that we have with our technology is a relationship that the technology has with us, right? Because I think we all at different points have like really developed emotional relationships with a car or a phone or a little robot or, you know, any number of other things, right? A a kitchen, um, you know, a a KitchenAid, you know, like I I have a very emotional relationship with my KitchenAid or my mixer, my KitchenAid Mm -hmm. mixer, I should say. I don't know if people (laughs) know the brand of my mixer. So I think that's part of the the fantasy too, is that like, no, your car loves you. And if you're in trouble, your car will transform into a hero that saves you. Yeah. And it's just the word that comes to mind is nourishing. There's something nourishing about like a fantasy that speaks to, you know, something in our lives or something that's aspirational or something that we care about. And like, I feel like that's the kind of secret sauce. And like, you could change anything about a show or, you know, a series or a story. But if you lose that, if you lose the core kind of thing that people connect to emotionally, that is just gone. Mm -hmm. And like, 
you know, I feel like we've seen plenty of examples. Like Star Trek at times has turned into just like pew, 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 shoot him up. Mm-hmm. Like we're just, it's a show about militarism. Like actually the first season of Discovery to some extent was that. Yeah. And it had some great moments in the first season of Discovery about like, we're studying giant tardigrades and understanding the mycelial network. But then it had moments of just like, we're at war and we're just going to war, 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 fighting, fighting, fighting. Mirror universe, and, blah, blah, blah. So, yeah. so it sounds like what you're saying is that I mean, it kind of flies in the face of a little bit of what we're told as writers, which is that Mm. we're often encouraged, you know, by editors and other writers to have readers develop an emotional relationship with characters. But you're saying that the characters can be important, but it can also be just a vibe or or a fantasy or a setting so that we can actually develop these long-term relationships with settings rather than like a, a figure like the doctor. That's how I, that's kind of what I think. And like, mm-hmm. again, the doctor is a unique true. case because the doctor can, they have, you know, since the beginning, the doctor has changed, you know, has been, had radically different personalities and different, mm-hmm. like, you know, one thing, God, watching Russell T. Davies' Doctor Who, again, it just reminds me how, like, the doctor has gone from being this, like, very kind of detached figure who is, like, eccentric but doesn't really express emotions most of the time mm-hmm. to just being, like, openly emotional and being, like, you know, like I've been watching Tumblr and like all the fans on Tumblr, the the moment in the Star Beast that the fans on Tumblr are really obsessing about mm-hmm. is the moment where the doctor says to Donna, after Donna has been saved mm-hmm. from like having her brain melt, the doctor says to her, you know, when I thought I had lost you, it killed me. And then he says three more times, it killed me, it killed me, it killed mm-hmm. me. And he's just like this moment of like, you know, extreme vulnerability and extreme like emotionality. He also says earlier in the episode, and I think this is maybe a callback to the special where like all of the doctors are kind of working through their feelings. But he says earlier in the episode, something about how like he loves Donna or something like that. Mm -hmm. And he said, Oh, I'm saying that. I guess I'm saying things like that now. And I was like, yeah, "Yeah, I guess we are now having some feelings. (laughs) Yeah. And again, like, even when Russell T. Davies was first making Doctor Who, there was this whole thing of like, is the doctor going to say that they love Rose? Like, Mm -hmm. there's like that whole like, can the doctor just say, you know, I love you. And in the end, the doctor never quite says it. Mm -hmm. The doctor kind of tries to, but it doesn't quite happen. And like, it's like now the doctor's like, nope, I love Donna. That's just how it is. Yeah. I like, yeah, that's progress. I feel like, but yeah, so there's, I feel like there's something that's like, you know, for something that's not Doctor Who, for something where there's like characters, like Patrick Stewart can only play Jean-Luc Picard for so long. And maybe eventually <laughs> yeah. some other actor will try to play Jean-Luc Picard the same way that like now Captain Kirk is being played by like multiple actors. And Spock. Like, you know, Spock is and also. Spock. Yeah, Spock. Multiple. There's been like multiple Spocks. There's just Spocks everywhere. Just like Spock all over the place. Mm-hmm. But um, But I think you have to transcend specific characters at a certain point, especially if like they're so associated with a particular actor. I don't know if anybody else can play Jean-Luc Picard. I'm really curious to see eventually when somebody tries, but you know, I think that wasn't like Tom Hardy. His oh, clone or oh something. God. Oh God. No, <laughs> Sorry to remind you of that, but oh, no. yeah, I just, so I Tom just, Hardy, sidebar, future Picard. I just, <laughs> sidebar, I just read an interview with Patrick Stewart where he said that like, when they were making that movie, everybody in the next generation cast was like, yeah, we're never going to hear from this Tom Hardy guy again. He's just, he's going nowhere. <laughs> and like, they thought that was the end I of mean, Tom Hardy's career. That was, I, I mean, uh, that was a terrible role. <laughs> it, was, it was not Tom, Tom Hardy Hardy's got really lucky. Like, finest I don't, hour. I don't know what his breakout role was, but it was definitely not that. It was some British thing. I don't know. But anyway, yeah, yeah I feel like beyond a certain point, yeah, we bond with characters. Characters are what draws in. But then I think what keeps us coming is this sense of like something like that's like more emotional, more kind of like just a a vibe that we really like. Mm -hmm. And when something becomes like the Marvel Cinematic Universe or something like where it becomes huge, like a huge universe that people just love that universe. That's usually because there's something about it that's like transcends any specific character. Mm -hmm. That's the ultimate kind of victory condition for if you're creating a fictional setting is that people just really love that fictional setting. And there's something about it that's just really aspirational or that we love 
the the vibe of it. And like, you know, I have a rant I'm just going to do really quickly about like Stretch Armstrong. Stretch Armstrong was one of my favorite toys when I was a kid. Okay, well, good. Because so now you can explain what Stretch Armstrong is and then I'll like give my little rant. I don't, I, all I know is that there was this Stretch Armstrong doll that I bought as mm-hmm. a kid. And the whole thing was that it was made of this novel kind of polymer where you could like stretch its arms really long and then snap mm-hmm. them back. But is Stretch, I guess Stretch Armstrong is more than just a stretchy doll. So tell me more. No, actually, that's all there is to, to Stretch Armstrong. Really? You completely okay. summed up the character. Wow. It was that's really fun. That's the entire like... Stretch Armstrong mythos is that yeah. his arms stretch. The thing about the Stretch Armstrong doll was that you you get it for Hanukkah and mm-hmm. play with it for that night. And then the next day you're done because what else can you do? It's like all you can do is stretch him. Like, I don't know. <laughs> anyway, I'm just being a little autobiographical. <laughs> so back in the day, you and I worked on this website where we wrote about science fiction news. And mm-hmm. like, I feel like every year, like clockwork, I would have to write an article about like, here's the latest attempt to make a Stretch Armstrong movie. And for a while... Taylor Lautner from the Twilight movies was going to play Stretch Armstrong in the Stretch Armstrong movie. And like, (laughs) there were all these different like plans to make a Stretch Armstrong movie. And it's like, this is a toy that like nobody under the age of, I'm going to say 30 remembers Mm -hmm. or cares about. I would say under the age of maybe 45. (laughs) Yeah. And like, even people our age are just like, what What was that? it's yeah. a guy whose arms stretch, which is literally I he has he the same like based superpower. on a wrestler or something, or maybe I think it's... it was literally just like they had this material that they could use to make stretchy arms, and they were like, <laughs> "It's Stretch Armstrong," and that's like his whole personality is his arms could get really stretchy, and it's the same personality as it's the same power set as like the, the elongated man and like Plastic Man yeah. and Mister Fantastic. Sure. It's not even a very unique power set, no. and like, and it was only his arms. It was only his arms. He's Stretch Armstrong. He's not Stretch Leg Strong. <laughs> and so <laughs> or next the point strong. Where, I promise this is going somewhere. The point okay. is, there's nothing, there's no mythos about Stretch Armstrong. There's, But there's also no, like, there's no emotional hook to Stretch Armstrong. There's mm-hmm. not like, I really believe in Stretch Armstrong because it's a story about the human ability to stretch ourselves in mm-hmm. response to difficult situations <laughs> there's nothing about stretch armstrong that's like that kind of needs to be a, a story it's just literally he doesn't play with have it for like hour. a world or a setting like he's not from like stretch world or like he's not part of a team where like one person can like stretch their neck and another person can stretch their fingers or it, it's like he's just a guy stretchy guy yeah and so i always thought that this was like kind of encapsulated hollywood's like determination to monetize every single piece of IP. Mm-hmm. Like if it's an asset on the books, we've got to turn it into like a money-making thing somehow. And like, nobody stops to think, do we actually, does anybody care about Stretch Armstrong? But also my point, my larger point is that Stretch Armstrong is like the opposite of Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. Like Doctor Who has not just like a rich mythos and like a lot of like moments and things that people come back to and like you can bring back a character from like 20 years ago and people are like "Ooh, that character i love that character but doctor who has an ethos there's an idea behind doctor who that's really compelling Mm -hmm. there's like there's something that you just when you see doctor who you kind of know what kind of story it's going to be even if it can go in lots of different directions and can be like a pirate story or a horror story or like there's just something that's like very quintessentially doctor who and like I have no idea what a a Stretch Armstrong story would be about. Like, there's just, you know, so I feel like that's my example of something that doesn't have this thing that I'm talking about that makes stories like have longevity, have like legs. Stretch Armstrong does not have legs, is what Mm -hmm. I'm saying. Yeah. I mean, it's also fun to contrast Stretch Armstrong with something like Transformers, which is a Mm -hmm. much more apples to apples comparison. Also a toy, yeah. Yeah, also a toy that was kind of like, okay, it's a toy. But it had built into that toy, like, all of these fantasies Mm -hmm. about a world, right? It wasn't just a stretchy guy. Um, I mean, stretchy guy doesn't imply any kind of world or fantasy other than, like, already existing, like, Marvel and DC properties, right? Like, it's like... It, it, we don't want to stretch this metaphor too far, but you know, yeah, we, you know, we could, we could really get bent out of shape here, but um, yeah, I think that's a, a great contrast. Although to be fair, before we go to break, I will point out that there have been some toys and games and things that have been made into movies like battleship 
or emoji movie where you're like, again, question mark, question mark, question mark. But like the emoji movie was huge. And that was literally based on emoji. So I think you have to, you know, you have to be kind of open minded about like, well, this object to me might feel like it doesn't imply a world, but clearly emoji implied a whole world. And in fact, like emoji are literally the embodiment of emotion. So maybe I'm kind of talking myself out of that comparison because they, yeah, they, are, I mean, they are a thing we connect onto. Like I have feelings about certain emoji. Like there's some emoji that I use all the time to like represent my frame of mind. So n- none of which are actually in the emoji movie, but that's, that's fine. <laughs> this is literally the first time I've ever thought that I might want to watch the emoji movie. So, you know, congrats for that. Yeah. Thanks. Okay. We're going to take a quick break and when we come back, we're going to talk about the Davros controversy. So as we kind of discussed at the start of the episode, Doctor Who is kind of once again making waves with its queer and feminist themes and pissing off transphobic people, which I'm super happy about. But there's also another controversy about Doctor Who. Oh, yeah. And basically, so the Daleks, who are Doctor Who, the Doctor's main kind of adversary, they're these... Exterminate! Exterminate! Yeah! They're these kind of like... Pepper pots is how they're usually described. They're like little salt <laughs> shakers that like zoom around trying to kill everybody. And they're actually like, there's like mutated creatures inside them. And mm-hmm. um, the creator of the Daleks, you know, who was introduced back in like 1975 is a guy named Davros, who is in a wheelchair and also has some facial scarring from like an accident and sort of like the bottom half of Davros looks like a Dalek. So it's sort of like, Oh, you know, he created this assistive technology for himself, and then that led to him creating the Daleks. So you can kind of see how they mm-hmm. got there back in 1975. Mm-hmm. But um, in a recent, it actually a five-minute kind of skit slash mini episode that aired recently, Davros came back, and he was still played by the same actor as he had been for a long time, Julian Bleach, but now he's not in a wheelchair anymore, and he doesn't have the facial scarring anymore. And this is how... Uh, current Doctor Who showrunner Russell T. Davies explained what what had happened. Time and society and culture and taste has moved on and there's a problem with the Davros of old in that uh, he's a wheelchair user who is evil. And I had problems with that and a lot of us on the production team had the problems with that of associating disability with evil and trust me there's a very long tradition of this. I'm not blaming people in the past at all, but the world changes. And when the world changes, Doctor Who has to change as well. Yeah, it's so interesting because also in um, the episode of Doctor Who that we were just talking about, there is a character who is in a wheelchair and she's like the opposite of Davros. She's super badass. She's played by Ruth Madeley, who is herself disabled and she's like, she's with Unit and she's just like kicking ass and taking names. Mm-hmm. She's the scientific advisor. Yeah, Ruth Madley was incredible in the TV show Years and Years, uh, Russell T. Davies' mm, dystopian yeah. TV show. Mm-hmm. So it's really, there's like a whole subplot with her and a sex robot that's like, it's bonkers and you should just watch it. Um, and we've always already had a whole episode about disability in science fiction, which we'll link to in the show notes. So we're not going to get too deep into the, the issues here. But you know, this is an example of Doctor Who making a fairly, you know, striking change to, you know, move with the times. And as mm-hmm. Russell C. Davies says, it's like, you know, you have to keep changing in order to stay relevant. And like, there's also another thing that's coming up, actually, in one of the later episodes featuring David Tennant. They're bringing back a character from 1966 called The Toy Maker. And in mm-hmm. 1966, he was a white guy who wore Chinese robes, oh, no. and he was called the Celestial Toy Maker, which Celestial Ugh. is kind of a term for Chinese people. Yeah, I'm and aware. And he was sort of like a little bit of a sinister, like he didn't he was like talk a with an accident kind of character. A little bit. He didn't talk yeah. with an accent. They didn't like put makeup on him, but he did kind of seem like a sinister kind of Chinese guy. Mm-hmm. And now he's just uh, he's still a white guy, but he's just wearing. European clothes and like looks like he doesn't they've kind of gotten rid of the whole looks Chinese thing part of the aspect of the character and you know we're going to see how that plays out but Mm -hmm. it feels like they're trying to kind of take old stuff from the show and just kind of make it a little bit less problematic yeah and I think that's part of what we were talking about earlier with the 
ability of this show to stay relevant and to have longevity is that the doctor is always transforming and the social context around the doctor also transforms. And that makes the show feel like it's relevant and like it's Mm -hmm. set in the present day and like it's not just like rehashing the same old stuff. Yeah, and I feel like that is part of like Doctor Who always tries to be sort of cutting edge, even in the 70s, Mm -hmm. trying to be like bleeding edge and just try to kind of whatever was the new hip thing, Doctor Who would try to do it, but also talk about whatever was were the relevant issues at the time. That's always a thing that's happened. And so this sort of thing has come up lately with a lot of things in culture, like the culture war keeps coming back to this thing of like how we're changing like classic stuff. And like there was like a thing, a controversy recently where some of Roald Dahl's books were being kind of like the new editions had like slightly different language to get rid of some of the, you know, offensive language that Roald Dahl used. A couple of Dr. Seuss books that were, you know, very obscure Dr. Seuss books that nobody really reads anyway, were being kind of phased out. So they just were not going to be sold anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, I've noticed Star Trek Strange New Worlds is kind of updating things very gently, like Nurse Chapel, who was kind of a damp squib back in the 60s. She just Mm -hmm. sat around mooning after Spock. She's suddenly like this really awesome character who's got all this cool stuff going on. So, Annalie, yes, when we were talking about this before recording, you mentioned that you felt like there were three different ways of approaching this question, depending on the situation. And, you know, can you expand on that? Yes. Well, you know, I love to categorize things. And so Mm -hmm. we were talking about how do shows or stories remain relevant or how do they kind of, in a sense, reboot themselves. So I was saying that I think there's a big difference between a reboot or a reimagining of a show, as you see in Doctor Who or Star Trek, where like it's it's the same universe, but it's completely different characters or a different approach to old characters, like we saw with Davros, um, or something like Star Wars, where you get things like, you know, the Mandalorian versus Andor, and you get these kind of new modern takes on mm-hmm. a, a story that's really old. Um, So there's that way to do it. So there's the way of just modernizing a story. Then there's what you're talking about with Roald Dahl, where what you do is you take the same old story and you just do some clever edits on it to take out the Mm anti-Semitism or to take out the sexism or whatever it is. So it's the same text, but expurgated. And um, then I think there's a third way that you can do it which is what happens with some like old Disney films that also have a lot of racist content, a mm-hmm. lot of um, anti-Black racism, especially, where the property owner, whatever company owns the film, uh, releases it with some front matter, like a, a, an explanation saying, you know, this film came out in 1932 and it contains racist representations. Usually they don't say racist representations, but they'll say something like, this contains you know, racial imagery that may be offensive to some viewers. So they contextualize it. So they preserve Mm -hmm. the original text, but they provide almost like a museum would provide context for you to understand this historical document. And so I was, as I was bloviating about this to you, I was saying that I vastly prefer the museum method, you know, the the kind of providing context, because I think it's really important as someone who looks at the history of media, I'd like to see the original and then have, you know, some kind of explanation for why it's like that. And then, of course, I love the idea of retelling a story again and again. So I think it's really cool when we see, you know, multiple versions of Dracula, for example, or we see multiple versions of King Kong, um, which actually I kind of feel like King Kong is not, you can't really rescue it. People keep trying to, but I, I feel like there's just something kind of like too racist about that narrative to ever fully be rehabilitated. But people are trying and Good, good for them. And so I think those are the two ways that I prefer. I think that the editing and expurgating is really dishonest and fucked up. Um, and I and that's an opinion. I, I totally get that other people prefer that method, but I think that erases history. And um, it's kind of a form of like, I don't know what you'd call it. It's it's like history washing I, or like it's, it's just, it's expurgating history. It's pretending like th- these narratives were always uh, modern in their sensibility. 
Yeah, I can see that. And I, I, I can understand that you want to preserve like the historical record and have young people who read this stuff now understand the way things used to be. I get that. I, I'm kind of have two minds about it. But so, okay, would you say that King Kong, we should just stop trying to, stop trying to make King Kong movies? Like we should just let King Kong go. I I think so. And I mean, when Peter Jackson kind of reanimated King Kong, um, he recreated it in a way that I thought was really racist in exactly the same way the original was, um, where there's these kind of fictionalized native people, you know, on some island somewhere. They're just like, quote unquote, islanders. I couldn't even tell if they were, I think they're supposed to be like Polynesian or something. And, um, you know, they're the classic... Uh, you know, colonial stereotype of quote-unquote savage primitives, right? They're not... They, they are almost themselves monsters. They're certainly fictional. Um, they're, they're as realistic as King Kong, shall we say. Um, and, mm-hmm. and, of course, King Kong himself is this racist icon who, you know, kind of embodies, like, white people's fear of Black power. Like, straight up. Like, there's no... Like, you watch the original King Kong, and it's like, it's about a big ape creature, like, stealing a white woman. And it's like, you know, it, that's, it's really hard for me to look at that and not think, wow, this is kind of like Birth of a Nation, but, like, mm-hmm. with, you know, a little bit of monster movie thrown in. And I think a lot of other viewers would agree. And so I was just like, how do you retell this story in a way that doesn't call on these like really racist colonial stereotypes? And I think that, you know, the the newer King Kong movies that like relocate King Kong to this, I again, I think it's supposed to be a Polynesian island. The, Skull the, Island. Skull Island, but it's like, it's supposed to be kind of like an Asian-ish culture uh, anyway in the new films. And in that, in the new films, um, not that I've thought about this a lot, sorry, the newer films um, portray the Islanders as being kind of, I would say, kind of a noble savage stereotype. Like they're, Uh... they're very, they're kind of portrayed in this new agey way. They're definitely glorified. They're not looked at, they're not portrayed as savage. They're portrayed as kind of like enlightened and like, you know, and wise, but they're Mm -hmm. still not really people they're still very stereotypical like none of them ever becomes a character who we get to know who's like three-dimensional and again i know it's a monster movie like you know looking for three-dimensional characters is like obviously gonna be maybe a failed mission but like all of the white characters and all of the the non-islander characters like have personalities and like have you know goals and stuff like that so I yeah. get why people keep wanting to go back to it because it's so iconic, but I I actually do think that it's not. I still don't really think it's been successfully rebooted in a way that doesn't feel creepy and doesn't feel like it's still calling on those same stereotypes. So that is my King Kong rant. I I totally get that that the newer films are not participating in quite the same way in these colonial tropes, but I think it's to me it felt. Um, like, why not just invent a new monster, you know, like, or a new context for the monster or something? Like, I feel like just let it go. Sure. I mean, we already have Rampage, which is like basically has elements of King Kong, but without any of the baggage. I mean, yeah. this is kind of what I'm talking about is like, I feel like certain things, it's okay to just let them go. Like, it's okay yeah. to just be like, we don't have to update it or we can't update it because the core idea of it is kind of messed up and like, let's just let it go, like create mm-hmm. new stuff. And I feel like that's the flip side of this thing of like, how do things stand the test of time? How do we update things to make them less problematic? Sometimes you can't and you shouldn't. Sometimes you should just be like, nope, we're just going to move on. We're yeah. going to, instead of King Kong, we're just going to have, you know, a giant otter who like, you know, I don't know. Lothar the Otter. I don't know. Yeah, uh, I mean, just or, like you said, out. with Rampage, like, Rampage has a giant ape who mm-hmm. is portrayed, you know, and it's a silly movie, just like King Kong, um, but it's it's it has a totally different It's not a giant ape vibe. from, like, the jungle who's, like, you know... No, it's, like, a giant ape who's, like, baggage. buddies with Dwayne the Rock Johnson, and, mm-hmm. like, there's a whole... And, like, and actually... The genetically engineered. <laughs> no, of. well, it's it's been... 
it's been transformed by CRISPR, but um, <laughs> but it it had um, the ape in Rampage knows some sign language and stuff, so it's like already kind of been kind of domesticated by um, I, I forget what Dwayne Johnson's character's name is, <laughs> but it's anyway, just The Rock. The Rock is um, anyway He's just playing the is rock. friends with this ape, and like it's actually like kind of cool. Like it it humanizes the 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 ape in a way that you know is really really different um, than in King Kong. And I mean, I just yeah, like there's lots of other also like they brought back King Kong in order to bring King Kong into connection with Godzilla, right? Mm -hmm. There's so many Godzilla monsters. Like, just pick a different fucking Godzilla monster. Like, I mean, they brought back Ghidorah. Great. You know, bring back, like, Ghidorah, the the smog smog monster. monster. The smog monster. I would love that. Why don't we have the smog monster? Smog monster is totally relevant to to today. And, um, you know, is a a great monster. And uh, I just, yeah, like, fucking let it go, people. Just, we don't need it. It's just like yeah. you reboot Birth of a Nation as a narrative and be like, well, we figured out how to make this a completely palatable narrative in the modern world. It's like, no, <laughs> just no. no. I think some things should just be buried. And like what I always say, I've said this a billion times, so I apologize if anybody's, heard me, anybody's already heard me say this. But, you know, if all we had of James Bond is like Ian Fleming's novels, which I read all of as a kid. I like I actually went on a James Bond kick and read every James Bond book. And those are super You are such a weirdo, Charlie. Super <laughs> racist and super messed up. Yeah. And just like I think stylistically nobody would be able to get into them now anyway. If all we had were the James Bond novels, nobody would be into James Bond. But we have the films. And mm-hmm. like every 10 years or so they come up with a new James Bond and James Bond is a different, has a different kind of flavor and Mm -hmm. like they keep the core thing, but they keep updating it. And that's, that's a good relationship with like James Bond to have. And like another Mm -hmm. example that came to mind is, you know, RUR was a really important stage play that kind of gave us a lot of the tropes we have around robots and around artificial people and our uprisings. Robot uprisings. Yeah. 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 But there's no hit Broadway production of RUR. We just, there's a million things that are super popular now that are drawing on RUR that are like taking the ideas mm-hmm. of RUR and bringing yeah. them forward. But actually we Westworld no- is a really good example. Yeah. yeah. Westworld. But nobody like stages are like, there's been one or two productions of RUR, but there hasn't been like a giant hit version of RUR. There's no RUR movie. Because there we actually don't should it. be though. I, I actually, well, anyway, I, I think RUR kind of stands the test of time. I mean, it's, I, I, I'm not saying like it should be a, a movie, but like I would welcome it. That would be amazing. Mm-hmm. Like if somebody actually wanted to to go back and and but again, they would need to update it. They would need to modernize it in some ways. But in some ways, it's like still pretty relevant. Um, it's very much about how capitalism is turning us into little robots and like doesn't it have like the well-meaning ladies who mess everything up because they just don't understand there's a well there's a female research scientist who is um trying to make the the robots of course are not technology they're more like they're um, biological yeah Yeah. they're more like replicants from blade runner they're like synthetic or or like murder bot um they're kind of like murder bot so she uh, implants them with feelings, and that's why they revolt. So yeah, I mean, it's kind of like it's. There's it depends on who's, but here's the thing: feelings. it depends on whose side you're on, right? Like because kind of the point of the play is like maybe the robots have a point, you know? Like it's not a super anti-robot play, so mm-hmm. it's kind of like in a weird way, the play is on the side of this scientist, this woman scientist, who's kind of the smartest scientist that they have. And so it's, yeah, it's, it's kind of, I could see it being rebooted in a way that was like pretty awesome, but it is true also that, that Westworld actually kind of deals with a lot of the same issues. It's just, it, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and of course Westworld is a, is a reboot of a previous movie from the early 70s we could have the theme tune are you are or are you ain't my robot anyway uh yeah i mean so (laughs) my final thought i want to bring it back to this idea that we talked about earlier in the episode of like you know there's a core thing that you connect to that's like as much about the ethos or the vibe or the kind of ideology as any particular character or any particular like 
piece of scenery or whatever. It's like Doctor Who. It's like nonconformity and hope and, and intellect and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like part of the project of getting rid of offensive stuff, getting rid of the stereotypes and the like misogyny and racism and just and homophobia that's like embedded in a lot of these older pop culture things, you clear away the crud, you kind of like clear away all the just junk that's like stuck to the outside. And Mm -hmm. then you can get to that core thing. That's what we love about it more easily because we don't have all this clutter in the way. And Mm -hmm. that's kind of part of why I think it's so important to do that, to like, to keep updating stuff so that it's not just fucked up and like loyal Mm -hmm. to some older version. Yeah, I think that's right. And I feel like people become attached to the crud as opposed mm-hmm. to the the heart of the story. And they, they start do. confusing, you know, pieces of the story that are actually not essential with what is essential to the tale. And I think that happened a lot with Star Wars. And that's one mm. of the reasons why Star Wars fans have gotten so angry about you know, wokeness in the in the newer yeah. versions is because they got attached to things that aren't what Star Wars is about. Star Wars is about rebelling against fascists. Like, mm-hmm. that's why we love that is because it's anti-authoritarian, it's anti-fascist, it's about the little guy, you know, rising up and using magic to, like, save the yeah, day. Yeah, and spirituality and, like, mm-hmm. how spirituality can help you fight fascism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Which how is can, a great message. It is a great message, and we don't need, like, the same old white dude to have that message. Like, a no. lot of different characters can be part of that message. And so, and, and of course, luckily, we are getting lots of different characters who are giving us that message. But at the same time, there's all this pushback and, and you know, reluctance to kind of yeah. to embrace the actual message of the show. <laughs> Yeah. And I I love the way you put it that like people get attached to the crud rather than to the, like the core. And I think Mm -hmm. that is a, that's a thing with fandom that sometimes people just have to take a step back. Okay. Thank you so much for listening. If you just randomly stumbled on us, uh, this is our opinions are correct. You can find us wherever you find your podcasts. If you like us, please leave a review because it helps a lot. Uh, You can find us on Mastodon, Patreon, Instagram, and some other places, but mostly those three places, and also on Blue Sky. Um, Thank you so much to our intrepid and brilliant audio producer, Veronica Simonetti. Uh, Thanks, thanks Veronica! Thanks, Veronica! We love you! Thanks to Chris Palmer and Katia Lopez-Nichols for the amazing music, and thanks again to all of you who support this show. Uh, We'll be back in two weeks with another episode, or next week we'll have a mini-episode if you're a Patreon supporter, and if you're a Patreon supporter, we'll be seeing you in Discord. Bye! Bye!